Well, hello, church. We want to welcome all of our Heritage family across our network, those here at Bettendorf, those tuning in from Rock Island, those checking us out online, and our friends at the Kwani Correctional Center. I love that I get to say that. Love it. This is week three of our parable series, and we looked at a number of parables already. You can find those online, but we're going to dig into another one today because these simple stories that reveal these deep spiritual truths were pretty significant in Jesus' teaching. In fact, more than a, roughly about a third of his recorded teachings were in the form of parables found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and today the parable we're looking at is called the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant. And the focus of the parable, the point of it is to allow us to understand forgiveness. Now, before you lock in because you think you have this all figured out, or before you lean away because you don't think this has any relevance in your life, or even you're tempted to, to lean back because you're concerned that this subject is too painful, too sensitive to engage today, I want to encourage you to hold that thought for a moment. Because what Jesus does in this parable is he gives us an inside scoop into how to live into the fullness of forgiveness. He gives us insight into what it is and how it all works. In fact, it's positioning us today to understand how we give and how we get forgiveness. And we all want forgiveness. We, we want to live in abundant forgiveness. But we can make bad situations worse when we don't know how to give and get forgiveness. Kind of like this woman in this 20-second commercial. Fabulous. How about if we don't give us a ticket today and just a warning? License and registration. Okay. This your monkey? The truck monkey. We don't understand how to give or get forgiveness can make a bad situation worse. We don't understand how to give or get forgiveness. Now, here's something you need to understand about me. When I drive, I drive effectively and efficiently. That's the best way I can describe it. And I don't appreciate those who don't drive effectively and efficiently. When somebody cuts me off, boxes me out, doesn't yield, that's kind of frustrating for me. And I'm not looking for special treatment, just common courtesy on the roadway. And I have been known to react to that uncourteous driving. Now, hear, hear me. It's not road rage. Not road rage at all. Road rage is bad. It's never appropriate. But I, but I do have conversations in the privacy of my own car. Like, excuse me, sir, I didn't realize you needed that lane to make that illegal lane change. I'm sorry, ma'am. Apparently, you are in a bigger hurry than I. Go right ahead. It's just one of my ways of coping with the fact I can no longer pull people over and write a citation for that kind of stuff. But I have to tell you this. Listen, I was I was heading to work one day, and this is a while back, this is back when I was in Pennsylvania, and I was, I was heading to work when I was out on the road, nobody was on the road, when a car pulled out right in front of me. And maybe you've had that happen before. It was right in front of me, there wasn't enough time, I had to slam on my brakes to avoid hitting them, and there wasn't anybody behind me. It was like, why did you pull out? But they pulled out right in front of me, and to add insult to injury, they went 10 miles under the speed limit after that. Incredibly frustrating, and I was already running a little bit late to get to my first appointment, and so... I kind of eased up behind them just to let them know they'd made a mistake. I wasn't technically tailgating, but I was letting them know I was there just to help them out so they would understand not to do that in the future. 
And then the, the, the moment I had a passing opportunity, I cut out in the left lane, I floored it, I just blew right by them, didn't even look, just to show them that I was just helping them understand they'd made a mistake. And I blew right by them, I cut back in, and I continued on to work feeling quite satisfied. But when I, when I got to the parking lot of the church, I pulled in, I was unloading my stuff, and I was getting ready to head into the church when I noticed a car that looked kind of similar to the one I'd passed pulling into the parking lot. And then I noticed it was coming towards me. And you may be thinking they were coming to yell at me because I thought that's what they were doing at that point, but it was much worse. See, as they got closer, I realized it was a couple from the church. And as they pulled up beside me, they put the window down and said, hello, pastor, in a hurry today? <laughs> True story. We, we can make a bad situation worse because we don't know how to give or get forgiveness. And we all want forgiveness, especially for ourselves. In fact, we often think we are always deserving of it when others need to prove if they are. And we can be really generous when it comes to getting forgiveness, but we can be quite stingy when it comes to giving it. We tend to give forgiveness to those we think have earned it or are worthy of it, but then we withhold it from those we think that have not. We kind of live in this tension of wanting to have a, a forgiveness based on convenience where we get to pick and choose. And we can withhold that forgiveness because we think something's still owed, but to owe to us or owed to somebody else, and we can treat it like a debt, treat it like a payment that we extract from somebody along in the way in the journey because we want to decide when it's appropriate and not appropriate to forgive. Because ultimately, I think sometimes that forgiveness paradigm makes us feel like we're losing. But feeling like we're losing doesn't actually mean we are. And the reality about the forgiveness God calls us to is that forgiveness is gain, even when it feels like loss. Forgiveness is gain, even when it feels like loss. That's your first fill-in in your note, God, if you want to track along with that today. Forgiveness is gain even when it feels like loss. And, and in the original Greek, the word for forgiveness in Scripture literally means to let go. But that can be hard. It can be hard when somebody cuts in line not to try to block them out. Or when somebody pulls out in front of, them, of us not to tailgate them. It, it, it's hard when it feels unfair. When, when we feel we're owed something or entitled to something. But today's parable is going to help us see it a little bit differently. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it and turn to Matthew chapter 18. It's in your note guide. It's also going to be on the screen. But I encourage you to go to Matthew 18 because we're picking up a parable that's only found in the book of Matthew. It's not found in Mark or Luke. It's only found in Matthew, and it's tucked in between some questions that the followers of Jesus, the disciples, were asking him. They'd ask one question about who's the greatest, and that led to a conversation about reconciling relationships. But then Peter asks another question that leads to this parable, the parable about a man who owed something, was forgiven, but then wouldn't forgive. He basically had a bad situation that got better, but then he made it worse because he didn't understand how to give or get forgiveness. So let's take a look at this. We're in Matthew chapter 18, 18 starting with verse 21, and, in, and we're actually reading the NIV. It says ESV in your note guide, but we're reading the NIV, and that's what's in your note guide. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Uh, so... Here's an interesting thing. He's asking this question, he's saying, me. Now, I don't know if he's just asking because he's only concerned about him or if he's trying to demonstrate that, that he has a special status or he can get better recognition or be a better forgiver. And because when he throws out the, the number seven, he's actually stretching what was commonly accepted. See, the common teaching of the day from rabbis was that you would forgive somebody three times. 
You could sin, repent, and be forgiven for the same offense three times. That was common teaching of the day. So when Peter said seven, he's already more than doubling it. And maybe he's thinking he's going to get some award or appraisal or approval in this. But he, here's what Jesus does. Because the question that Peter's asking reveals a misperception about the subject matter in and of itself. Because Peter's asking, how long until I can quit? It's really what he's asking. And when we do that, we did that as kids. How, how long do I need to keep cleaning before I can stop? How long do I need to stay in time out? How long do I need to keep brushing my teeth? How long until I can quit? And, and some of us, even as adults, still ask some of those questions too, I think. But that's what Peter's doing. He's asking, how long do I need to keep doing this until I'm able to quit? But Jesus' response blows the doors off of the framework that Peter had in mind. Because here's what he says. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, in some translations, it says 70 times seven. But, but Jesus wasn't moving the dial from three to 77, or from three to 490, which is seven times 70. He was actually saying, you never stop. There's no limit. That there's not a number. It's a posture of continuing to forgive. And then he drops into and steps into a parable to explain this. Here's what he said. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And those would be slaves. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, there's two things to note about this first part. One is that he was brought to him, which means this was probably not a, a willing participant in this process. That it was, he probably didn't want to have this conversation. The amount of debt that he owed probably put him in a place he didn't want to have this conversation, would have rather kept a blind eye to it and just pretend it didn't exist. And most of us treat our debts that way. But he's brought to the king, and, he, and he's forced to have the conversation around a significant amount of money. The NIV says 10,000 bags of gold, but literally what Jesus said was 10,000 talents. And a talent was a, a unit of value, and it was a large sum of money. Let me put it into context with you for a moment. One talent equaled 60 minas. And, and a mina, one mina was equivalent to three months' wages. So one talent was 60 times three months would be 180 months. So one talent equaled 180 months or 15 years' wages. That's a lot. So one talent, 15 years wages, but we're talking about 10,000 talents, which means it's 150,000 years wages. Whoa. It's an insurmountable debt. It's huge. And this guy isn't able to pay it. Here's what happens. Take a look. Because this guy had debt upon debt and he had, was indebted to his debt, this is what happens. Since he was unable to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, the deal was they were to be sold for a mere pittance of what he owed. There was no way it was going to recoup back what was lost, but it was the consequence and accountability to it. And so the plan was he and his family would be sold, but, but then he does something that touches the heart of the king that changes the whole, changes the whole game. Here's what he does. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. And the King James Version says, he worshiped him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. <laughs> no, he won't. <laughs> it's ludicrous. But he is humbly begging. He's submitting himself to, to the person he owes. He's positioning himself in a way that something can change. And, and it actually does bring about a change. It, it, it connects to the king's heart. And what he does actually positions the king to do three things. 
See, the servant's master took one, pity on him. Two, he canceled the debt. And three, he let him go. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And, and that servant had to feel this great joy and elation at those three realities. I mean, I know how you and I feel when we're at dinner with somebody and they say they're going to pick up the check. You're like, I remember how I felt when I was a victim of identity theft and I was told I owed more than $1,000. <laughs> and then how I felt when the investigator called back and said they found the person and that I didn't have to pay any of that money. And that wasn't even a debt I incurred. You would think this guy would feel great joy and enthusiasm around this, but he doesn't. He actually is mad. I don't know if he's embarrassed or ashamed, but he demonstrates it in anger because here's what happens next. But, the, but when the servant went out... He found one of his fellow servants, so this isn't a peon, this is a peer, who owed him a hundred silver coins, literally a hundred denarii. And one denarius was equal to one day's wages. So what's a hundred denarii worth? Come on now, there you go. A hundred days wages. It's like, like a little more than three months. It's, it's a little more than a mina. It's one sixtieth of a talent. It's a mere pittance. It's a fraction of what he'd just been forgiven, yet he goes and finds this guy. And here's what he does. Check it out. He grabs him and began to choke him. He grabs him by the choke and begins to choke him. He says, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now, this is ridiculous. It's absurd that he would literally go out, try to find this servant, and make him pay back something much, much less than what he had been forgiven. But yet that's what he does. It's, it's absolutely absurd. And in this confrontation, that fellow servant responds. Here's what he says. He fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Sound kind of familiar? Just like the conversation the first servant had with the king. And you would think at this moment, that servant would go, oh, hang on a second. Wait, oh, wait, this sounds like what just happened for me and I was forgetting. You know what? Never mind. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, it says that he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. You know, it's easy for us to sit here today and say, that's ridiculous, you shouldn't do it. But you know what? We do a very similar thing all the time. Having been forgiven of things, we often withhold forgiveness because we think people need to prove it or earn it when we haven't. And in this dynamic, same, similar scenario, he has the guy imprisoned, he seeks accountability, he seeks recompense, having no compassion or pity. It's appalling. But this isn't the end of the story, and there's actually more problems to come for this first servant, because his co-workers see him do this. And in verse 31, we can read this. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is a huge turn of events. His forgiveness is canceled, his debt's back on the table, and now he's imprisoned. He's not even sold to work for somebody else. He's imprisoned and positioned to be tortured. This is a huge change. 
But Jesus brings this whole parable home for Peter and for us in what he says in the very next verse. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Did you hear that? If you remember nothing else, if you hear nothing else, if you tune out for the rest of this message, do not miss this. If we do not forgive, we are not forgiven. If we do not extend it, we do not have it. We are to forgive from our heart without limits, without conditions. Forgiveness withheld means no forgiveness at all. You may think, for real? Yeah, for real. And this isn't the only time Jesus taught this. Twelve chapters before this moment in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said these words. He said, for if you, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will what? Not. Not forgive your sins. This is life-changing. If we do not forgive, we do not have forgiveness. Here's the challenge with unforgiveness. It torpedoes our relationship with God. It puts a wedge between us and him, an obstacle. In fact, we become the obstacle whenever we grab a hold of the other person's throat. We ourselves become the obstacle. We get boxed out and we tailgate, we try to, we try to respond with re re revenge. We become the problem. We actually become the obstacle when we grab somebody's throat because in our ego, we point ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. And our sense of being justified gives us a false sense of permission to do whatever we want and extract what is owed to, to grab the throat. And as hypocritical as that may be, when we're believing we're owed something, our feeling of justification trumps the facts. But justifying ourselves because we feel justified is always problematic. And doing what's wrong won't make things right. The old adage of two wrongs don't make a right. And feeling justified is not justification. Now, I get that the offense, the pain, the loss, the injustice can work on us until it positions us to believe that we're in a place of justification that we can step out in a place of unforgiveness or, or revenge. But in those moments, the Lord wants you to hear very clearly that he understands your pain, but it doesn't excuse your sin. That he calls us to be like him and to forgive as he forgives. See, our forgiveness is often different than what God intended because his forgiveness is gain even when it feels like loss. And we are to forgive as our Father forgives us. Look, each of us can think of a relationship that's in jeopardy. We have them. If you think about why they're in that state, most often, if not all of them, are connected to an issue of unforgiveness, either because of us or because of them. Relationships have challenges and they take work. But the reality is, in any relationship, there will be forks in the road then when we choose unforgiveness, we are putting that relationship on a course to failure where it won't survive. The moment we choose unforgiveness, that relationship is on a course not to survive. There is no enduring relationship without forgiveness. None. Not one. It's true in every marriage. It's true in every household, every group, every friendship. It's always true. 
Even our ability to live as members of the body of believers here at Heritage is contingent upon the fact that we each understand that our relationships require forgiveness and grace. I, I have no long-lasting relationship that isn't marked by forgiveness and grace, not one. And we can and should forgive as the Lord forgave us. So I think we get, okay, we're supposed to forgive. I think the bigger question is how do we go about doing that? How do we get and give forgiveness? Well, first thing is, I think we need to understand that all sin is first and foremost against God. All sin is first and foremost against God. After David committed the sin of adultery, he wrote a psalm in repentance. And it was Psalm 51. And in verse 4, it captures a nuance of this reality that I'm speaking to. Here's what he said. In conversation with God through this psalm, he said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's saying, Against you, God, I have sinned and you only. Now, that, that's an interesting thing. You've got you to catch what he's saying in this statement. He's saying that when we sin, we sin against God first. First. We sin first and foremost against God. It, it's not against us. It's not against our loved one. That sin is not against the other person. They are affected. David, his sin affected the woman he was with, her husband. There was a ripple, but it is first against God. Sin is against God, his holiness, and, and what he deserves. And that's one reason why our justification is wrong and why he can call dibs on forgiveness. It's first and foremost against him. So let's go a little bit further in the subject matter, though, because Paul reminds us in Colossians 3 about another reality about forgiveness. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There, here's the how instruction. Do it just as God did it for us. And that's, that's revolutionary. That, that's a tough thing. But you've got to understand, he's not saying this and putting caveats to it. He's not saying, hey, forgive once they ask for forgiveness. Or, or forgive once there's been enough time that's passed. Or, or forgive when it's just minor or small and you can deal with it. He's not even saying, forgive once the offense is public and now you have public support and people will think highly of you because you forgave that sin. He's just saying, forgive as God forgives. And that can be really hard, if not impossible, without the power of God at work within us. So here's another key to living in forgiveness. It's understanding that forgiving is not forgetting. It's a combination of first releasing. Releasing. See, when we talk about forgiveness, some people say you just need to forgive and forget. To forgive and forget is garbage. It's hooey. It doesn't work. To forgive and forget, it's not a goal. Don't try to do it. It doesn't work that way. Not even God does this. God does not forget our sin. He cancels our sin through Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, when we receive Jesus as Savior and Jesus cleanses us, then there's no need to call back the things that we've made mistakes in, no need to embarrass us or shame us, no need to have conversation. It's gone. It's removed. It's no longer an obstacle. God does not forget our sin. He cancels our sin, and now we're able to have relationship with him in that dynamic because he is the one who releases. He releases, and we need to do the same. You may recall I said that the Greek word for forgive literally means let go of. That's an action. It's something that we can and must do. It's not just a feeling we're supposed to let go. But quite honestly, we often don't want to. We, we want them to hurt like they hurt us. 
Well, we want revenge or at least justice. But the forgiveness that Jesus calls us to is not about what the other person deserves or not. It's about the grace that God gives. And God says, release them so I can redeem them. Release it so I can redeem it. Forgiveness is about releasing. And often we may struggle because it feels like we're losing. But when we don't forgive, we actually imprison ourselves. And that parable that we read helps us understand that we actually set ourselves free when we step into forgiveness. Forgiveness is gain, even when it feels like loss. Forgiveness is release, not loss. But it's also absorbing. It's absorbing. Forgiving is not forgetting. It's a combination of releasing and absorbing. And this might be the harder of the two realities. See, forgiveness means we refuse to make the other person pay for what they did. But that inherently means that there is a form of suffering alongside with it. Suffering because of what is now. Or suffering because of what isn't now. Or suffering because of what won't be. There's inherently an element of suffering in the releasing and absorbing of sin. But it's also in forgiveness that what can be actually can be. By not returning wrong with wrong, we're positioned to release the debt and absorb the sin. We absorb the cost rather than extracting it from the other person. That's why it feels like loss, even though it's gain. You know, there was a point in my ministry journey when a teammate led a campaign of of usurping and undermining my authority and, uh, and deception. They, they lied about me and to me. They lied, lied about staff and to staff. They lied about congregants and to congregants. And, and I didn't realize it or find out about it until they had already transitioned into a new season. When I first heard about it, it rocked my world. It broke my heart. Uh, I had to begin to live into this thing I'm teaching, this process of releasing and absorbing. And quite honestly, it wasn't all easy um, but by God's grace, over a period of a couple months, I was able to orchestrate the opportunity to sit down across from this person and offer forgiveness and seek reconciliation and begin to see redemption take place. It was a m- beautiful mix of, of brokenness and grace. And as tumultuous as that whole thing was, In the end, what I clearly understood God asking me to do was to absorb that person's sin. Because there wasn't vindication for me. There was no no public acknowledgement. There was no clarification of the things that were misunderstood. It it was a process of me of release, for me, of releasing and absorbing sin. And my ability to do that stemmed solely from my understanding that that's exactly what Jesus did for me. Released and absorbed my sin. And forgiving is not forgetting. It's a combination of releasing and absorbing. Now, I know we can struggle with that, though. We may not want redemption because we want them to hurt, to know the same pain and the shame and the ridicule we've experienced, even to have the inability to forget like we do. But forgiveness is not about forgetting. It's about letting go of the other person's throat. 
And in the freedom to choose to do that, we experience the freedom to live. In the freedom to choose, we experience the freedom to live. Because feeling like we're losing doesn't mean we are. Absorb the sin and absorb the debt. If we don't do that, we run the risk of imprisoning ourselves. Just like the servant in the parable who threw his coworker into prison, we can imprison ourselves. And the parable reminds us of that and helps us understand that we set ourselves free. Because forgiveness is gain even when it feels like loss. So this takes us back to give and get. There's a simple principle that I want to encourage you to incorporate into your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships. If you're willing to do it, it'll radically change conflict resolution. Understanding in giving and getting that there is a difference between apologizing, saying we're sorry, and asking for forgiveness. We in our culture treat them as all the same, but they're not. They're very different. When we apologize, when I say I apologize, I keep control with me, and I involve the person offended, not at all. I make it about me. I apologize. It's a surface expression. It's not a bad starting point, but it never gets to forgiveness. When I say I apologize, I keep power and control with me, and I don't involve the wronged party. When I say I'm sorry, it's a little bit better because I'm acknowledging a complication in the situation, but it doesn't get to forgiveness. It still keeps control with me as the offender. It does not empower the offended, and therefore we can't get to forgiveness. Think about it this way. When we say in our culture, I'm sorry, what's the most common response? It's okay. I submit to you, it's probably not. But that's the dysfunction of I apologize and I'm sorry and stopping there. What we really need to do is actually move into a statement and an action of saying, please forgive me. When we say, please forgive me, we put power and control in the hand of the offended party, and that's where it should be. And we humble ourselves before them, and we await a response. And that's where the beauty of forgiveness comes in. That's how we give and get forgiveness. And maybe for some of you, you need to look at how you've resolved relationships, whether they're marked by apologies or marked by seeking forgiveness. If you will implement an intentionality to seek forgiveness and ask for forgiveness and not just apologize, it'll radically change your relationships. The most important relationship it'll change will be your relationship with God. Because if your relationship with God is marked by, I'm sorry and I apologize, but not please forgive me, there's a problem. The reality is we're not forgiven just because God loves us. This whole forgiveness concept is about the transfer of power, not the use of power. It positions the offended party to have the power to extend and give forgiveness. It's in the hands that it should be. And as you do that with your relationships here on earth, I encourage you to consider how you're doing it in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Because your relationship with God is marked by apologies and not repentance, saying you're sorry and not please forgive me, then you've not reached surrender, you've not given him control, and there is a complication in your relationship with him. We're not forgiven because we're sorry. We're forgiven because we give power and authority to the one who can forgive, the one who can purify. God doesn't forgive us because he loves us. He forgives us because Jesus lived and died and rose again. He conquered sin and death. And until we fully surrender, we'll never fully experience his complete forgiveness. It's the release of the power in the situation. So how do we apply this? I want to ask you a rhetorical question. It's one I don't want you to answer out loud. Just think about it. What is the worst thing you've done? Or, or better yet, what's the worst thing that has ever happened to you? What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Maybe you were lied to, humiliated, 
tricked, betrayed, abused, cheated? What was that worst thing that happened to you? We've all experienced hurt. What, what's the worst thing for you? I imagine just thinking about it just evokes a visceral reaction. Your stomach can even start to turn. What we do with that matters. And it matters more for us than for the other person. And most of the time, we actually don't know what to do. And so we carry the burden around. We, we hold rage in our heart. We, we have unsettled thoughts with a knot in our stomach. And if even the things we do try don't last for long. But the reality is because of Jesus, we can overcome that. Because of what Jesus did, we can be free. Nothing positions us to forgive better than knowing that we have been forgiven. The sin debt that we owe to God is incredibly great. And to refuse to forgive others means we don't understand that. And it ultimately positions us to fail to receive God's forgiveness. Because not forgiving sets us outside and above God's law of love. Even if the offense is great. Because nothing's compared to how we have offended a holy God. And withholding forgiveness is always wrong and costly. And we appoint ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. It's ungodly. And it creates a problem in our relationship with God. But here's something that Andy Stanley said, and I think it helps us put this in perspective. He said, in the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. That's forgiveness. And if we're honest, we can struggle with forgiving. We can harbor anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. And when we do that, we ultimately hurt ourselves. Forgiveness rots us from the inside out. It's like a cancer. I watched cancer take the life of my mother over a number of years. It destroys and ravages the body. And in a very similar way, unforgiveness rots us from the inside out. We can forgive as he forgave us. There's a process to that, and we could say that forgiveness is a simple action lived out in a complex journey. It's a simple action. It's a, it's a spiritual journey, but it's a complex journey. It's simple because we can release. It's easier to release than to chase down revenge. It, it's easier just to let it go than to harbor it and hold it. It's easy to release. It's a simple action. The complexity comes in the emotional pain, the injustice around it, the fact that loss remains in the context and proximity of beauty and grace. Yet, it starts the journey of redemption, good out of bad, beauty from ashes. Forgiveness is a simple action lived in a complex journey. So let me just explain a couple of things that forgiveness is not and what forgiveness is, because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Forgiveness is not relationship. It's not relationship. Unless people speak truthfully in a confession, unless there's a change of conduct and thinking, a relationship of trust is not possible. We can offer forgiveness, but it doesn't inherently mean relationship. God offers forgiveness to all, but only some choose to move beyond forgiveness to relationship. Forgiveness is not relationship. You may need to seek to forgive a person, but it may not be appropriate or even safe or maybe even possible to go to them. So in the forgiveness journey, you will do this in your heart privately. But forgiveness is not inherently relationship. It's also not inherently trust. Trust can only be rebuilt over time after forgiveness. To forgive is one thing, to trust is another. Forgiveness is also not a single act. It's a journey of decisions, only possible because of God's work in us, our daily choices. And for some of the wounds in our life, it's the first thing you think about in the morning. Every day you wake up, it's the first thing you think about it. But as you release and absorb, one day it'll become the second. And then one day it'll become the third. 
and it'll continue to become less and less a dominant reality in your life, and you'll live in the freedom and healing that Jesus has for you. Those are some things that forgiveness is not, but here's some things that forgiveness is. It's first for you. It's first for us. When we forgive, we release from judgment. We let go of something that will eat us from the inside out like a cancer. But forgiveness is always first about us. The need to pursue it, the need to extend it is first about us. It's only about others after we do our part. It's not, it's first about us. The second thing it is, it's possible. We can forgive because he forgave us. Nothing is impossible with God. We can do this. You can do this. You can live out of his power. He, he's modeled it. He empowers us to do it. You can forgive. It's releasing and absorbing. And he enables you to do that. Finally, it's a process. In the same way that it's not a single act, it's a process. It's a daily choice. Multiple times some days. Every hour, every day, every week. But over time it lessens and eventually it will dissipate and eventually it will become the second thing you think of in the morning. It's a process. Forgiveness is a simple action lived out in a complex journey. A journey of daily choices, multiple times a day. I need to regularly revisit forgiveness in the key areas of my life of great wounding. To, to re-release, to swallow the pain again. It lessens over time, but it's a reoccurring decision to release. The anger around the wrong is okay, but whenever we lay hold of somebody's throat, we become the obstacle. What was once their fault and their problem is now obscured by our hate and our hurt and our bitterness. So understanding that that's what forgiveness is and what it is not, where do you need to give forgiveness? Where do you need to get forgiveness? forgiveness. For some of you, this is in a relationship with God through Jesus. You need to not say, I'm sorry, and apologize alone. You need to move to asking for forgiveness and receiving Jesus as Savior. Where do you need to give? Where do you need to get forgiveness? As you process where that might be and who might be involved, let me show you this video from a few folks who've walked this journey.
We've all been hurt, exploited, mistreated, let down, wronged, cheated. And until we fully let go of the other person's throat, we'll never be free. Or at worst, in the end, lose our forgiveness because of our own unforgiveness. Yet we find true freedom and healing in forgiveness, in the releasing and absorbing of forgiveness. And it's time to let go. It's time to let God forgive them, you. But it's time for you to let God work as you forgive as he forgave you. That person that hurt you or wronged you, that person that was involved in that worst thing that's ever happened to you, God wants to redeem them. He wants you to let go of their throat. So don't let anger or pain or, or loss keep you from loving, from forgiving, from removing your hands from the other person's throat. Ask God to help you. Choose to forgive. You can do this in his power. But as long as we hold the other person's throat, we're stuck. We're stuck. So where do you need to give or get forgiveness? pray together. Heavenly Father, in a world that is marked by great complexity, it's a world full of beauty that we live in, but there's also a world of brokenness right beside it. There are great and wonderful joys, great blessings, but there's great hardships and sorrows. Yet in that complexity, you are still God. And even though we may not understand what you allow or what you orchestrate, why you allow or orchestrate things, in the midst of that complexity, you are more than able to give us the strength and ability to stand, to release and absorb. Father, I pray that as my friends process where they need to give or get forgiveness, that you would speak, you would enable them, and they would live into it with abandon, that you would show up in the complexity whether that's giving their life to you for the very first time through your son Jesus or whether that's releasing the throat of another person that they have held for, for, for too long. Lord, may we be a people who are known for our forgiveness because we are a people who have been forgiven. We have been forgiven much. So Lord, may we forgive in response. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said,